Uh, namaste to everyone. Well, then we're going to talk about uh, Buddhism and the roots of Buddhism. It's a much debated question whether Buddhism is Hindu or not. Some people think they are being bold when they say something, anything, preferably something nice, something peaceful about Buddhism and Hinduism. But that still means that the two are juxtaposed, that the two are equal. And I say they are not. And so I already give away the answer to the question. So essentially, Buddhism is one of the sampradayas of Hinduism. And the, Buddhism, the Buddha himself never thought of himself as anything but a Hindu. So the word Hindu at that time was not in use yet. The word Hindu only came into India with the Muslim invasions, which is about, uh, well, more than a thousand years after the Buddha. All right. Um, it is often said that Buddhism has Vedic roots. Very many Hindus say that. Now, about the degrees of separateness of Buddhism, you know, that's a, another discussion that comes later. When you say that Buddhism has Vedic roots, it can still mean many things. It can mean that he was in the Vedic tradition, or it can mean that he was a rebel against the Vedic tradition, which is nowadays the common opinion taught in textbooks throughout the world. Now, the um, Hindu opinion that he came from the Vedic tradition is partly true or is certainly understandable. When you look at Buddhist texts, of course, you see, even in the Pali canon, you see a language, Pali, which is the daughter language of Sanskrit, which is very close to Sanskrit like Dhamma is very close to Dharma, is really a rough colloquial pronunciation of Dharma. So you see that it has a lot in common. And then when you go study it more closely, you, you find very, very many things in common. First of all, the word Arya. Many Hindus think of the Mahabharata or other classical texts where the word Arya means noble. And so they say, oh, it means noble. Well, originally it doesn't mean noble. Originally it means, or it refers to a member of the Paurava tribe within which the Vedic poetic tradition arose. So starting with King Bharata and court priest Bharadwaj, Hymns are being composed and are getting systematically collected into the 10 mandalas or books of the Rig Veda. That didn't happen just anywhere. That didn't happen in India. No, that happened in a specific Indian tribe, the Paurava tribe. And within that, it can be even uh, be seen more precisely uh, as a, a an artwork of the Bharata 
clan within the Paurava tribe. So it's somewhat akin to the traditions of the other tribes, the Anava tribe, the um, to which Zarathustra belonged, the um, Yadava tribe to which Krishna belonged, the Aikshwaku tribe to which uh, Rama belonged, but it's not the same. You see, it's akin, but it's not the same. The Vedic tradition is specifically of the Bharata tribe. However, it became the backbone of a very strong intellectual tradition. There were not only the hymns and the concomitant rituals that went with them, but there was also a whole intellectual tradition that gradually arose, comprising astronomy, mathematics, grammar, the totally new science of grammar, which is an absolutely Indian creation. And so Western linguistics arose as a later, much later 19th century granddaughter of Indian linguistics. But so, that very prestigious tradition was gradually created. A special class of professional priests was set apart to continue and to perfect that tradition, the Brahmins. And that tradition became very prestigious. And so that was taken over gradually in the rest of India. So the Buddha, when he grew up more than a thousand years after the closing of the Vedic corpus certainly was influenced by that. And so we see him also use the word Arya. Arya, which means Paurava originally, but which as the Vedic tradition spreads, comes to mean Paurava for the others in the sense of Vedic. And so Arya means Vedic. It doesn't just mean noble. You see, the meaning noble has the same story in Sanskrit as in, as in English. In English, the word noble originally means a sociological term, namely the elite class, the upper class. You know, the earls, the barons, the princes, the dukes, they are the nobles. And then later it gets metaphorically broadened into the meaning of, um, of noble behavior, of upper class behavior, uh, generous, uh, conscious of duty, trying to set an example, and so on. And so it gets a moral meaning. So noble nowadays is mostly used in that moral meaning. That meaning was coming about in the time of the Buddha, but the sociological meaning of upper class was still present. And so we see that when the Buddha tells stories about the ancient Buddhas and the future Buddha and so on, he has a predilection for the Brahmana caste, and the Kshatriya caste, Kshatriya to which he himself belongs. He is a prince, he is a direct descendant of Manu, the lawgiver Manu, 
He is a relative of Rama and of all the princes of uh, Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, who belong to the Solar Dynasty. He is an elite person par excellence. This is even true physically. He, according to descriptions in the Buddhist texts, he was tall and very white looking, which incidentally may explain why among the handful of Nazi Indologists, he was very popular. The Brahmins in those circles were disparaged as a mixture of Aryan invaders and the native priesthood who were pushing, who were promoting the native superstitions and idolatry and so on. And against that, the Buddha was portrayed as a nobleman who was really Aryan racially and in terms of values culturally and who tried to restore the real Aryan culture. That's the, the Nazi version. With that, of course, I'm not saying anything except that his upper class character and his very uh, upper class looks endeared him to people who were into that uh, European racist. But, you know, that need not concern us very much farther. But what does concern us is that he was very conscious of this upper class origin and that he felt it to be present in uh, his own teaching. He resented anything that was cheap. Uh, he had the typical uh, upper class mentality of being very goal oriented. You see what he strongly disliked in the uh, spiritual profession was the enormous tendency to speculate and to bicker and to discuss. You know, he strongly uh, militated against this uh, speculation, this empty talk. He dissuaded his own monks or prohibited them, if he had the power, from participating in those empty, silly, metaphysic, purely metaphysical debates. He was very goal-oriented. And um, so that's part of his upper class behavior. He was a great organizer. He was a politician since youth. He was the son of the Shakya Republic's president for life. Strictly speaking, his father wasn't a king because it was not a kingdom, it was a republic. But he was voted and then normally the one who was voted in stayed on for life. Then after his death, the successor was voted. This was not necessarily the son, but somebody very talented, which the Buddha was. So normally he would have succeeded to the throne if he hadn't made a choice for becoming a monk. But so he still had that, uh, that upper class background with the upper class connections. You see, he knew all the princes and magnates in Greater Magadha, let's say the area from Ayodhya to uh, what is now Patna, Pataliputra. And we see this also throughout his life. Um, he is often consulted by these princes 
not so much for spiritual matters. He gave spiritual discourses to his monks, and th those are collected in the Pali Canon. But you see, to these kings, he intervened in worldly affairs. And so we see that he was greatly ap appreciated because he knew politics very well. He had been in his 20s before he became a monk. He had been a senator. Um, he was participating in policy making in the Shakya Republic. But when he became a monk, he had no stakes in these political debates anymore. He was not secretly plotting to serve his own power interests. So he could be trusted. So he was both capable and trust, trustworthy. So he was asked a lot. And so that's because of his superior status. It is important to mention this because First of all, it, it shows that caste was already present in the society in which he lived. We'll go b deeper into that further down. Um, it also explains the great success of the Buddhist order. There were many sects in his day. Most of them have disappeared. Jainism has remained, but it's only a small sect. But his own sect became world famous. Buddhists might say that this is because of the quality of his teaching, that his was simply the best and therefore the most successful. But that's not usually how history is made. What played a big role in his case was the patronage by all these friends of his, by all these acquaintances, by all these fellow upper caste men or upper class men. So they would patronize his viharas, the, the monasteries that he built. And by the time he died, he had a whole network of monasteries. And every young man in India who felt a spiritual vocation would not have to go to some Himalayan um, cave or something. No, you see, there were monasteries right in his own city. He could go there and get a really uh, proper uh, education there. The doctrine was getting more sophisticated, was switching over from the colloquial language to Sanskrit and so on. So it was really well done. It was really fine. It attracted many people. It attracted the best minds, and so it got ever more sophisticated. Buddhism became a very attractive philosophy and a very attractive meditation practice. But this has to do with the Buddha being uh, a member of the elite. And so that elite is not necessarily connected to Vedic origins. But in practice and in his part of India, certainly yes, um, because um, the power of a tribe initially was powerful, that greatly helped it expand. Then later it started expanding on its own steam with the Mahabharata war, of course, its, its expanding power came to an end uh, because of the brotherly war within the tribe. 
but its cultural um, power kept on increasing. You could compare it in the modern world with England, which completely exhausted itself in the First and Second World War, lost its empire, yet its language keeps on becoming more influential. Ever more people learn it, it is automatically unquestioningly used in international platforms. So similarly, Vedic culture kept on expanding across India long after the political power of the originating Paurava tribe had gone. So the Buddha belonged to that. And you can see very many terms which he uses and which entered Buddhist discourse, which testify to that. For example, the term Brahma Vihara. Brahma Vihara means a divine state, literally a divine place, uh, a divine state, namely certain uh, moral attitudes of uh, fellow feeling, um, fellow feeling with the person who, who does his best, who strives to become better, to prove himself, compassion with people who are miserable, or indifference with people who are behaving badly. So you don't try to get worked up about that. Simply let it happen and wait till the time when he uh, changes his life. But so that's an attitude. How, what attitude you should cultivate toward other people. That's called Brahma Vihara, divine attitude. This shows And it's a term that is used both in Buddhism and also by Patanjali, both within and outside of Buddhism. But so it's a term that intrinsically refers to Brahmanism, to Brahma. The divine is indicated as Brahma. If he had been anti-Brahmin or anti-Vedic, it is very unlikely that he would have used that term. He might have had exactly the same concept, exactly the same attitude, but he would have named it differently. In this case, very unselfconsciously, without any problem, he named it after Brahma. Similarly, you have the Buddhist concept Indrajala. In fact, in uh, Western pro-Buddhist literature, this is often termed as a Buddhist concept. It is not, it comes from the Atharva Veda. And it means Indra's net, which in modern terms is called the holographic para uh, paradigm. The fact that uh, in a whole, uh, every part mirrors the whole. Like for instance, in a human body or in an animal's body, Every cell has the exact same genetic code. So that genetic code is an instruction manual for the whole, and it is present in every part. So that's an Indrajala. That's a very ancient concept, even though modern genetics is just uh, 20, 30 years old. Still, 
um, this concept, this vision of the holographic paradigm is 4,000 years old. It's pre-Buddhist. So there's a lot of continuity. Um, take, for example, the typical Buddhist um, rhetorical form of it is not it is not X and it is not not X. And sometimes this is even reduplicated from a dilemma, a choice between two into a tetralemma, a choice between four. It is not this. It is not not this. It is not nor this nor not this and something else. Okay. <laughs> so this division into four or simpler uh, division into two, that's a typical rhetorical form that you already find in the Vedas. Most well known is the Nasadiya Sukta. Nasadiya Sukta, the creation uh, hymn, says that uh, at first there was neither non being nor being. You see, that is the typical rhetorical form that you find throughout the Buddha's discourse. Uh, a few times he even quotes from the Burhadara Yakupanishad. This is um, a discovery by the famous Oxford Buddhologist um, Richard Gombrich in his debate with a thesis uh, launched by uh, Johannes Bronckhorst, another famous Buddhologist, who says that the Upanishads were later than the Buddha, were in fact only an imitation of the Buddha, and that everything profound in them was borrowed from the Buddha. So, Gombrich says, no, no. He actually quotes from the Upanishads. So the Upanishads were definitely earlier, right? So unselfconsciously, he is part of the Vedic tradition. Now, that does not prove that his Buddhism, that the typical features of Buddhism are from the Vedas. Not because they are not present in the Vedas, but because the Vedas themselves have an earlier origin. There is a common origin between both the Vedas and the Shramana traditions of which Buddhism is a part. Yeah, we'll come to that. Let's first finish this about Vedic origins. So while there are, of course, clear references to the Vedic tradition, there is no magic for wish fulfillment, as in many Atharva Vedic rituals, or even in the Rig Veda, uh, you also have the idea that you bring a sacrifice to Indra or to one particular god in the hope that he will fulfill your desires. Like famously in the Battle of the Ten Kings, the court priest of King Sudas, court priest Vasishta, writes or composes hymns for Indra and then implores Indra to give victory to King Sudas in this difficult battle against the Ten Kings. And effectively, Indra is so charmed by those hymns that he, his heart opens 
for King Sudas and he helps King Sudas to a surprise victory. And then later, Vasishta boasts how his hymn has swayed the mind of the god Indra into helping uh, Sudas. So that's, that's Vedic magic for wish fulfillment. All right? Now that's not there in Buddhism. There are no requests being made from the gods. So when I say, yes, it is part of Vedic tradition, I cannot go all the way. It's not simply Vedic tradition. In the Upanishads already, you find the same change of attitude. You see, the gods become less important. Instead of karma kanda, you get jnana kanda. So instead of ritual, you get knowledge, you get meditation. And so the attitude of turning against certain typical Vedic beliefs is already there in the Vedas themselves, namely in the Upanishad part of the Veda. And so here we get a second theory about Buddhism, that Buddhism is a reaction against the Veda. Now, as I am busy explaining, the reaction against the Vedas, that is to say against the Vedic hymns, against the Sanghita part of the Vedas, is already present in the Upanishad part of the Vedas, where you have a turning away from this, essentially this magic, uh, these rituals in favor of jnana, of knowledge. That's not something new that the Buddha invented that was already there. There is also nothing in Buddhism that speaks of a reaction against Vedas. There's, it is nowhere said you should stop uh, respecting those hymns. You should stop following Vedic norms and so on. He never turns against the Vedas. In modern books, practically all of them, it is said that the Buddha was a rebel against the Vedas, that Buddhism is anti-Vedic. In many books it is said in so many words, in most others it is still said even if not in those very words. But so that's, that's in, in, in modern literature at least since a hundred years, this is generally accepted that the Buddha represents a reaction against the Vedas. Now the Buddha never said so, and on the contrary, there is a, um, a chapter, an episode in Buddha's life, known as the Saptashila, the seven principles, the seven uh, precepts of non-decline. And so he gives seven rules that the society should observe, lest it would not decline, lest it um, does not collapse, lest it gets defeated by enemies or so. So to make a society invincible, it must preserve seven rules. These essentially are practicing consensus, um, uh, having councils together, taking decisions together, but mostly also having a common culture, practicing the same culture, the same festivities, going to the same temples and so on, and preserving the existing religious customs. So far from being a rebel, he is a conservative. 
like his contemporary Confucius in China, he preaches this practice of a common culture and this preservation of this common culture. This continued respect for the existing sages, which in, in his part of the world, in his time for a large part were the Vedic sages. So this idea of the, the Buddha as reacting against the Vedas, that's modern invention. In fact, this is fairly well documented where that story comes from. In the mid 19th century, when first in Germany, then in England, America, France, scholars started studying Buddhism seriously. Uh, the, some of the first scholars there were fired up with the notion that this was similar to the revolt of Jesus against the Pharisees. You see the Jewish uh, sages, uh, or of um, Luther, Martin Luther, the founder of Protestantism, against the Pope. And so many of the typical uh, Protestant tropes against the Catholic priesthood, Catholic rituals, Catholic beliefs, the Catholic saints, and so on, they were projected onto the Buddha. Rebel, rebelling against the uh, the Brahmin priesthood. So that's where it comes from, but it's quite mistaken. In the Buddha's life, in the primary sources, there is no such, no such reaction. But then there is another theory that says that the Buddha had nothing to do with the Vedas. He was not continuing them, and he was not reacting against them. To some extent, that's wrong, simply because the Vedic culture had spread across India, was taken over, was introduced in education, and so certainly elite people had already been very influenced by the Vedas, whether their ancestors were part of Vedic culture or not. However, when the Aryan invasion theory was introduced in the um, later 19th century, that seemed to greatly fit this story. Because um, it, it worked very well with a scenario in which there was a native culture of which ultimately Buddha was a part and then you had the invader Vedic culture. And so the invaders imposed their Vedic culture upon the rest, but the rest in a sort of underground way managed to keep their culture and later also impregnate the invader culture. And so in Hinduism, more and more things were taken over from Buddhism. And so then you come to the modern image that Hinduism is nothing but a bunch of superstitions, which became a little bit better thanks to taking things over from Buddhism, which had it all along. Now that is not correct, but part of it is correct. Um, let me read to you uh, A.K. Narayan. He was an... Um, 
archaeologist, I think the first one in the 50s to dig up um, some of the Mahabharata sites. Um, so he was a strong believer in the Aryan invasion theory. He didn't know better. And um, so he says, and I read, it is an irony of Indian history that Buddhism, and for that matter, Jainism too, are regarded as heterodox against Vedism, that should be orthodox then, which is an Indo-European gift to South Asia. That is to say, one brought into India by the Aryan invaders. This um, Shramana tradition lay dormant and subdued for a period of almost 1,000 years after its political and economic bases were destroyed by these incoming Indo-European speaking peoples, but survived in peripheral and refuge areas of India until it started reacting against the Vedic people and their culture. Since Buddhism's roots did not lie in the Vedic Brahmana system, the question of its being a reform or rebel movement within that system does not arise. So, you see, very, very, very many of the Indologists are agreed on one thing. The Hindus, and especially the Brahmins, are the bad guys. And so, no matter what theory they think of, one of its practical conclusions will be that we have to eliminate or at any rate neutralize the Brahmins and Brahminical culture. So in this case, uh, some say, yeah, it's a reaction against the Vedas. Buddhism is a reaction against Vedas. Others say, no, Buddhism has nothing to do with the Vedas. But in both cases, the practical conclusion is the same, namely Buddhism good, Hinduism bad. That's what they mean. Now, they are welcome to their opinion. I'm not going to quarrel with that. You know, what concerns us here is the historical truth of the matter. I don't think that the Vedic tradition was a foreign import, but it was, it was akin to whatever tra uh, traditions existed in greater Magadha and in other parts of India. It was not a foreign import, but nevertheless, it was partly separate from it. Just as, for example, the Vedic tradition and the Zoroastrian tradition from Iran are very similar. They both um, bring fire rituals, but they are also somewhat different. And so, similarly, the Shramana tradition is a little bit different from the Brahmana tradition. And you find many things in common and commonalities that are very ancient, that cannot be explained by a later borrowing from one to the other, but that simply are very common, that are just Indian. And then others, you know, others are indeed um, separate. Uh, there is, for instance, a big dispute about the origin of the reincarnation belief. That didn't exist everywhere. 
in the family books of the Rig Veda, it is completely absent. And I've discussed this a lot with Indians. And so many people try to prove, yes, there was reincarnation in the Rig Veda. And all they come up with is lines which contain the word puna, which means anew, again. Uh, and, and which is also present in the word punar janma, to be born again or reincarnation. Well, <laughs> the fact that the word again exists, like in English, you know, among a population that doesn't usually believe in reincarnation, does not prove that the notion of reincarnation is there. Indeed, according to the Upanishadic literature itself, the notion of reincarnation was introduced as a novelty. And they, are, they describe in detail uh, in the story of um, uh, Udalaka and his son, um, how uh, the Brahmins don't know this theory. And then they learn of it from a Kshatriya. And so it gets introduced into the Vedic tradition where it originally wasn't there. Right. Uh, so that is possible that this was indeed uh, a, a common belief in the greater Magadha area and not in the Saraswati area where the Vedas were composed. However, long before the Buddha, namely in the age of the early Upanishads, it had already entered the Vedic tradition. So by the time of the Buddha, both this tradition in Greater Magadha and the tradition expanding from the West, from, from the Saraswati Basin, namely the Vedic tradition, both had that belief in common. By then it had been generally accepted in India. So, so that is not a matter of uh, a, a uniquely indigenous tradition, uh, not shared by, but imparted to, the invader tradition. No, you see, that was simply in common. And so, um, as long as we reject the Aryan invasion theory, and there's, I think, more and more reason to do so, uh, that question um, of Buddhism being part of an underground Shramana tradition that finally came into its own again, that does not arise either. Of course, this is a difficult point to handle for many Hindus. When I say that, not everything in India is derived from the Vedas. Buddhism is not derived from the Vedas, but very many beliefs and practices that everybody agrees are Hindu, like the cult of Murtis, the cult of mother goddesses, uh, and so on, they um, are not of Vedic origin. The cult of mother goddesses, of course, is much, much, much older. You know, as, 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 as long as human beings have left us some kind of material art, uh, we have mother goddesses. And so that's much older, that's not Vedic at all. In the Vedas, there is no temple culture not being described at any rate. So that 
seems to have another origin as well. So Hinduism is a commonwealth of different traditions, of which the Vedic tradition is one, and of which Shramanism with Buddhism is also one. When you discuss um, the Hinduness of Buddhism, many Buddhist separatists are going to say, ah, but the central doctrine of Buddhism is no self. There is no self. Of course, there was Hinduism, there was a Vedic tradition even, before there was anyone talking about the self. The notion of the self is as old as the Burhadara and Yokupanisha, where um, there is a, some sort of song of songs of the self, where Yajniya Valkya explains to his wife Maitreyi, not for the wife is the wife loved, but for the self. And so the, the deeper motive of everything is the self. Now, by the time of the Buddha, that doctrine was clearly known. And the Buddha doesn't argue against that doctrine. In fact, at one point he is challenged by a certain Vajhagota, whether there is a self, and he refuses to answer. I mean, at least he doesn't answer, he remains silent. Um, this is the kind of speculative debate, whether there is a God, whether the world was created and so on, whether there is a self, against which the Buddha warned because he thought it was quite useless. And we can see that in practice it is indeed useless. Because what does the Buddha do? What do the Buddhists do? They meditate, they empty their mind. They learn to look at themselves, but not to identify with any specific quality. To become nirguna, to become without qualities, to become empty. Now, exactly the same thing you find in the Upanishad. You see, what is the self? Is the self some specific thing? No, the self is neti neti. It is not this nor that. It is none of the pairs of opposites. It is not big nor small. It is not black nor white. It is not this nor that. So the self of the Upanishads and the no self of the Buddhists, if there is such a thing, certainly not of the Buddha, but of later Buddhists, they speak of the no self, essentially mean the same thing. And so this discussion about is there a self, is there no self, is really without object. It's a, it's a huge mistake. When you meditate, you try to sort of get rid of all the thoughts that come into your mind. You try to see, you know, this has no self to use the Buddha, the Buddha's term. You see, 
This is nothing. Let it go. Don't cling to this. Don't get attached to this. Let it blow away. It is at the time of Ashoka, which is like uh, 200, 250 years after the Buddha, that in a text called the Kathavatu, um, we first get the notion that the Buddha says there is no self. Or at least the writer of that text says there is no self. The Buddha never says there is no self. You see, that's one of the many false quotes. If you go on Facebook or so, you will find numerous modern quotes that are put into the mouth of the Buddha. Now, this is a bit of an older quote, but it has the same status. It's a false Buddha quote. The Buddha never says there is no self. Because the self is without properties. The self is empty. If it had any specific properties, it wouldn't be the self. Then in the first century before Christ, both in the Buddha Charita and in the Milinda Panya, um, this no self becomes the real center of Buddhism. From then on, Buddhism, or at least their Buddhism, um, becomes the religion of no self. Though they don't seem to be aware that no self is the same thing as self, just as plus zero equals minus zero. So the central question, according to, to the Buddha, is what will lead, if I do it, to my long-term welfare and happiness? And the question about the self does not help with that. If you just concentrate and you empty your mind, that will do the trick. And whether you call the, the ensuing state of emptiness, when you, whether you call it self or non-self, is really immaterial. Whether you call it zero or minus zero is immaterial. Uh, the explicit statement that the Buddha never said, and I quote, there is no self, I have seen confirmed by um, a Buddhist monk, Panisaro Bhikkhu, uh, in the paper um, Tricycle in the spring of 2014. So you will see that this whole fuss about self or no self is simply a false discussion. Then another uh, subject that they will certainly bring up is caste. Now, what they call Hinduism, or what they even specifically call the Vedic tradition, deals with everything. You see, it even deals with Kama, it even deals with Artha. It certainly, and at great length, deals with Dharma. And the, the, the Dharma Sutra, the law books or the ethical books, though the version of them that we have is only like 2,000 years old, nevertheless, that notion, even if it, the contents changed over time, but the notion of a Dharma Shastra was already present in the oldest hymns of the Rig Veda. There already they speak of the ancestor and lawgiver Manu. 
So they have everything, including Dharma Shastra, including books about ethics, about sociology, about law. Buddhism doesn't have that. This was recognized even by the great modern Buddhist, Dr. Ambedkar. He explicitly said that Sikhism, Jainism, Buddhism never had their own law system separate from the existing Hindu law system. That's why he defined a Hindu as every Indian who is not a Parsi, a Christian, or a Muslim. So automatically, all Buddhists, all Sikhs are included in the Hindu category. It's not me saying that, it's Dr. Ambedkar saying it. But I humbly agree. And um, so it's very easy to speak against caste when you're a monk. You see, Buddhism never really formed a lay community. Jainism did. There's a lay Jain community and some of their sons and daughters uh, go into the monastic order. But there is a lay community as such. Um, although even that still is, uh, does not have clear borders like um, uh, Jain Agarwals will marry non-Jain Agarwals, but they will not marry Jain Oswals. So they are part of the Hindu caste system. And they observe the same castes and so on. Uh, but still, you see, there is a certain notion of giant lay community. There never was a Buddhist lay community. There were some individual sympathizers of the Buddha who weren't monks, especially his patrons, those who financed him and his order. Uh, but there was never really a separate Buddhist community, and certainly not to the extent of forming their own law system. So there was no separate Buddhist attitude towards the caste system. Within a monastic order, it didn't matter. You see, you can become a Congress politician and act progressive and say you are against caste and so on. But look at what happens the day you have to marry off your daughter. You see, as soon as marriage comes into play and all the social links that go with it, then caste becomes important. Now, if you're a monk, you forego all these occasions where caste becomes important. Then it's easy to say, oh, I don't do caste. Like I met monks of the uh, Swami Narayan order, and they're very nice people. They have a very nice order and so on, and nothing against them. But you see, they said the typical modern thing, oh, yeah, we don't do caste. Well, yeah, of course, you know, if you enter a monastic order, then indeed caste becomes irrelevant or less relevant. Then outsiders can say, oh, this man doesn't do caste. Well, he doesn't do anything specific against caste, you see. It's just that he has no occasion to practice caste. And so monastic orders are relatively caste-free places, even in the most casteist parts of Hindu society. The impression that Buddhism is against caste comes from a number of polemical Buddhist writings 
dating from the 6th to 8th century AD. That is to say, more than a thousand years after the Buddha. But by that time, Hindu society had changed and caste had become far more important. And especially, there had come into being a number of writings by Brahmins, particularly uh, Kumarila Bhata, where they try to justify the separateness of the Brahmin caste uh, by making certain claims, making the claim that certain characteristics or certain genealogical uh, properties uh, were necessary for becoming a Brahmin, that it was also possible to recognize a Brahmin. And so the Buddhists said against that, well, you see, the castes are a fact of life. There is no text ever of Buddhists trying to ab abolish these castes. They were not reformists, let alone revolutionaries. They were never in practice abolitionists of caste. Um, but nevertheless, they were against this Brahmin pride, uh, this Brahmin pretense, this, um, this, you know, what you could call the naturalization of caste, the fact that the reification of caste, the fact that caste was not some fleeting social phenomenon, but that it was in fact a God-ordained division of mankind, that they didn't believe in, and they found it necessary to say so, because by that time, a thousand years later than the Buddha, uh, Hindu society had evolved to the point where this claim was commonly made. So then that polemic did take place, and, um, and there is value in the arguments by Buddhist polemicists like Dharmakirti, against uh, caste. So that's a discussion that we can have. Uh, but I'm just pointing it out, you know, there, there has really been a Buddhist polemic against caste. Nevertheless, if you go back to the time of the Buddha himself, the story is very different. Um, let's look at what he said in real life. Now, let's remember that he was an elite person himself. Even his original order was mostly upper caste, like 45%. Somebody has taken the trouble of counting. Of those um, uh, of whom we know the caste by description or, or simply by their name, 45% are Brahmins, more than 80% are of the three upper caste or upper Varnas. So it is not true at all that this was an untouchable revolt or anything. But anyway, um, that's just a, a background fact. You see, the Buddha himself was not personally involved. He did not make a selection of candidates. Only upper caste people can come in or so. That's not reported either. However, there is a very important incident in his life where he gets to do with caste. His friend, King Prasenajit, um, has married a girl 
um, thinking she's a, a, an elite girl of the Shakya tribe, the tribe to which the Buddha himself belonged. The Buddha himself, of course, didn't live there anymore. There was a new uh, president for life. And so he had an illegitimate daughter. You see, the tribal council didn't want to throw away one of their beautiful girls to this interloper prince, Rasenajit, because he wasn't the Shakya, and the Shakyas felt very proud of themselves. And um, so they passed over this illegitimate daughter. And so he married her. He had a son by her. But the son later on, when he went to visit his grandparents, found out that there was something wrong with his birth, that his mother was not a princess, but that she was some illegitimate cleaning lady's daughter. And um, so he was very angry. And then he told his father, and his father was even angrier. And so he disowned his wife and son. You know, they were not proper kshatriyas, like he himself was. So he talked about it with the Buddha. Now, if the Buddha had been a militant against caste, this would be the moment when he should have said, but caste is ridiculous. We don't do caste, you know. Become a Buddhist, you know, drop this ridiculous caste. List. Well, he didn't say that at all. But he reacted in a very interesting manner, for historians at least. He said that, Caste is a purely patrilineal thing. That is to say, you have the same caste as your father, regardless of what the mother is. This we find, for example, in the case of Veda Vyasa. Veda Vyasa was the son of one of the sages par excellence, Parashara, a Vedic sage with a fisher girl. So that fisher girl was not a Vedic sage or of a family of Vedic sages. But it didn't matter. The father was a Vedic sage, so was Vyasa himself. So similarly, according to the Buddha, since Prasenajit was a proper Kshatriya, a king, in fact, of Kosala, his son was perfectly fit to succeed him as the king of Kosala, because he too was a proper Kshatriya. So that was the conservative view you see, caste gradually came into being. In the family books of the Rig Veda, it's not there at all. That's why the Arya Samaj very rightly said, caste is not Vedic. But then in the Mahabharata age, it comes into being in stages. So first you have patrilineal caste. Later on, you get full endogamy, where father and mother have to be both of the same caste. So that's the classical caste system that has existed for some 2,000 years. And indeed, in the genetic record, you can find it back that before that, there was more mixture. And in the last 2,000 years, you have this crystalline division into separate castes. Um, but so the Buddha wasn't concerned with that. He wasn't condemning that or so, trying to abolish that. And nothing like that. Only he was a caste conservative, which does not mean in this case he was very nasty about caste. On the contrary, he was more enlightened to our modern feeling. 
he was more relaxed about caste. Then the customs that then came into being, first among the nobility, uh, then later on among the whole Hindu population. And then finally, um, you see all these things about society um, are peripheral. Uh, Buddhism is a moksha shastra. It's concerned with liberation. It says, you see, shed all these things. That's also why it is impossible what is nowadays thought in India that the Buddha, the Buddha was a social reformer. You see, if you want to dedicate yourself to social reform, that is a full-time job. If you dedicate yourself to fulfilling your own wishes, that's already very time-consuming. Becoming rich, becoming famous, that's a very, uh, very time- and labor-consuming job. But some people succeed. Some people become rich, for example. Now, if you instead do not want to fulfill your own wishes, but to create an ideal society, you know, that will be even more time consuming. That's a far bigger job. If you want to do that, it is very unlikely that you will succeed in achieving liberation. So it is perfectly logical that the Buddha didn't concern himself with social justice and social equality and so on. The Buddha concerned himself with liberation. So, now that notion of seeking liberation is not something new. Already when he was born, a soothsayer said he will become either a king or a sage. The notion of sage was already very well known. At 29, he had his famous four meetings. One of them is a sage. One of them is a, a monk, you see, so one who devotes his life to meditation in order to achieve liberation. And he does it so well, he is so inspiring that he motivates the Buddha even without saying anything, just by his radiation of his peace of mind. When the Buddha sees him, he says, this is the example I want to follow. And no mention is made anywhere that his contemporaries are surprised. They know this. There are people who renounce, become renunciants, who renounce the world, who go live in the forest, practice meditation, do things that the rest of society doesn't understand very well, but are apparently very precious. And those people are venerated. Um, so he only steps in footsteps that have already been made. Indeed, he himself says so. Um, he says, I walk on the path that the earlier Buddhas trod. This is in the Milinda Panya. Um, so he doesn't claim any originality, contrary to his followers who claim originality for him. And so he goes to the forest and he joins other monks. So there are other seekers, other ascetics. This is nothing new. And then, according to the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the syllabus on the noble search, he had two meditation teachers. 
He didn't invent it all himself. There was Alara Kalama, a um, Sankhya teacher of the Hindu, of the non-Buddhist Sankhya philosophy, who is a famous expert in breath control and in dhyana marga, in meditation. And then there's also Udaka Ramaputta. So in succession, he goes to the two of them and he learns their meditation techniques. Staying in nothingness, akinchanyayatana, and um, entering the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception. Neva sanyana sanyayatana. Uh, that is to say, neither perception nor non-perception. Uh, so those are two states of meditation. Now, in modern books, when this is mentioned at all, often it is not. It is presented as if he was disgusted, you see, that this was leading astray, uh, that he had to better find out for himself. Now, he did not show any dissatisfaction with his meditation techniques. In fact, he continued to practice them himself. Among the stages of meditation in Buddhism, these are the two last stages before liberation. So <laughs> he did not grow dissatisfied except on one point. He thought they do not eliminate suffering. When you come down from that meditation state, back in your usual life, Suffering is still there. And so he had this particular concern about suffering, which many of his other, of his colleagues didn't have. That was not the necessary reason for taking up meditation. Uh, even like the Arya Samaj Guru, um, Dayanand Saraswati, explicitly said, and it is, it's a critique of the, the very basis of Buddhism, it is not correct that everything is suffering. And it is not true that you can only start meditation as a reaction against the experience of suffering. You know, there are other things in life than suffering. Anyway, it's a very important and interesting philosophical point. Um, but so he is not disgusted at all. What happens rather is an instance of what the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche uh, said, namely, you don't honor your teacher by remaining his pupil. If you are a good pupil and you manage to learn what he has to teach you so that you become his equal, then you take the knowledge that you've learned and you take it further. If there is more to conquer, to discover, then it's up to you to do it, to go even beyond what your teachers have been able to teach you. So that's what the Buddha does. And so there in reaching the Nirvana, you can say of the Buddha that he could get that far because he stood on the shoulders of giants. Just like Isaac Newton said, when he made splendid discoveries in physics, people said, wow, you're a genius. He said, no, 
I could see this far because I stood on the shoulders of giants, of all the earlier scientists who built up to where I was at my beginning. And so that's the true story of the Buddha. So the Buddha developed his own way, starting from a very great common treasure, a tradition of meditation that was already many centuries old at the time when he came on the scene. Well, um, the uh, conclusion therefore has to be that uh, in spite of some interesting debates, particularly about caste, that are of course by now irrelevant, now that caste has been uh, formally abolished and is also sociologically in the process of disappearing very gradually. But so at some point, yes, there were differences of opinion about this and maybe other matters. But nevertheless, there are between many Hindu Sampradayas these uh, differences of opinion. And this doesn't alter the fact that they are of a common stem, of a common tradition that in modern terminology is Hindu tradition. Thank you. Uh, while I understand that uh, Buddhism has a general milieu uh, of Hinduism because it shares all its sociological and historical antecedents, uh, the point is that even in formal philosophy, you encounter the idea that Buddhism is a Nastika Darshana, which means that historically there has been some kind of disagreement over the value of the Vedas, though even though, like you said, Buddha says that he has come to establish the old Aryan ways and so on and so forth. He doesn't deny any Vedic deities. Uh, so... Where do you think, in, uh, where do we know in history this kind of uh, difference first happened? And secondly, uh, I also happen to read Huan Sang's account of his travels in India, where he refers to uh, Buddhist viharas and heretic temples. I don't know what the actual Chinese word was, but I can only read the English. So uh, clearly they saw this, uh, what we call Hinduism, as something very different by the time of Huan Sang. So how did this historical evolution take place and what evidence do we have? Thank you. Yes, uh, as for the word Nastika, I myself am not very sure how old the term is. Um, it's not Vedic at any rate. The Vedas make no distinction into Astika and Nastika. It is there in, uh, by the time of the, the notion of the six darshanas, the six orthodox darshanas. But here we're talking of like the 1300 or so AD, very much later, you know, you have the um, um, Sarva Darshana Sangraha by Madhavacharya, which is, I think, 13th or 14th century. Uh, there you get an enumeration of all the Darshanas on an equal footing, where Buddhism is simply one of them. That's exactly how I see it is one of the existing darshanas. And so they're all in conversation with one another. There are debates between Mahayana Buddhists and uh, um, Sankhya people and Nyaya people and so on. They are just part of the great Hindu conversation 
Um, but so there you get the notion of six orthodox darshanas and some dozen of unorthodox darshanas. Now that is a very late notion as far as I can see. Um, the, when you look at the six orthodox darshanas, they are not originally astika, not in the sense of being theistic, believing in God. That certainly is not the meaning. Sankhya was originally very distinctly atheistic. Uh, Nyaya Vasheshika started as atheistic, became theistic later on. Um, Vedanta likewise, it in a sense has no notion of God, no notion of some divine thing outside yourself because your Atma is the same as Brahma. That at least is in Advaita Vedanta. Later on you get theistic Vedanta systems. And so in modern Hinduism, this theistic Vedanta is all over the place. It's really the winner. But so with the rise of theism, other schools become theistic. And uh, similarly, with the, the um, advance of the Vedic tradition, many non-Vedic schools of thought become Vedic. Like in Sankhya, the Vedas aren't there. And uh, Shankara, in his comments on the other philosophies, holds it against Sankhya, as also against Patanjali, that they don't quote the Vedas, that they seem to you know, be doing fine without referring to the Vedas, right? So if you want to use the words Astika Nastika in the sense of believing or not believing in the Vedas, then some of the Astika Darshanas are in fact Nastika, Nastika. Um, so to what, you know, what really is the meaning? I mean, quite serious professional philosophers are still debating this matter. Um, I hesitate to hazard a guess of, you know, how old these terms are, because there is so much of Sanskrit literature, and in this lifetime, I'm not going to read all of it. Even, even in the Vedic period itself, it's so large, such an ocean, that I can't hope to, you know, to find out all about it. And so it is in dark corners of the literature that probably you will find uh, elements that militate against the now common received wisdom about Indian thought. So I don't dare to speak out too finely about that. Um, as for the Buddha ever saying that he saw something unorthodox, I'd, I'd really have to check the translation to see what it really is that he has said. Um, he may have meant that, you know, he saw a temple belonging to another sect, a non-Buddhist, and that, of course, is perfectly fine. You know, if a Shaiva sees a Krishna temple, you know, a Vaishnava temple, he will say, yeah, I saw a non-Shaiva temple. Yeah, well, so what? You know, I mean, these were there. He, he wasn't saying you have to do something against them. He wasn't even saying you have to shun them. You know, so I'm, 
it's a very interesting um, fact that you mentioned there, but we'd have to look deeper into it. Thank you, Dr. Elst. I have a question here from a participant. He says that you mentioned that the word Arya refers to the Kaurava clan or the upper class. But in the Srimad Bhagavad Gita in chapter 2, Shloka 2, Bhagavan Sri Krishna tells Arjun that he is being an Arya. So here the word Arya refers to what? Clearly the word Arya in this context refers to something normative, something you should aspire to. You know, it's an honor to be Arya and it's a dishonor not to be Arya. That at any rate, regardless of the closer meaning that we can find in Arya, clearly it's something good and an Arya is there for something bad. That's, that's already clear. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the Bhagavad Gita is, is very post-Vedic. And so by that time you have like classical Sanskrit, uh, which linguistically is already quite seriously different from Vedic Sanskrit. Um, so by that time, Arya has evolved in meaning, but still it has this elitist connotation, as also in the Buddha, you see. Because when I say, okay, it has a, a moral meaning of noble in this modern English meaning, uh, that's a bit of a concession. That's partly true. But that's like in the, you know, the, the um, Chatwari Arya Satyani, the Four Noble Truths. Um, so you can say that that has a moral meaning, it means noble. But very likely at the time of the Buddha, that sociological meaning was still primary. It did mean upper class. And so... He referred to it as Arya in the sense of, you know, good, better, quality, you know, standard, normative. And so it didn't mean that he kept out the lowly people. It did mean that they had to do their best, you know, to keep themselves clean and to, you know, become, well, the kind of brave that is part of monkish life of following the discipline you know, keeping your eye on the ball or on the goal of enlightenment and so on. Um, so in a way, a monk, the life of a monk is a bit of the life of a military man. It's disciplined, it's goal-oriented, it seeks victory because enlightenment is a kind of victory. And uh, so for a common man, that's not the default attitude he has to learn the attitude so in that sense you see this this concept of noble still has the sociological connotation of the aristocracy um so you know you can't just say in the vedic time it means this and in the buddhist time it means something else no there is a shading over but so the original meaning very clearly is the power of a tribe. Well, the even more original meaning is us. The original meaning is uh, those who belong to our tribe. So that means not the guest workers. That partly also means, listen carefully, that partly also means not the women. 
because the women are exchanged between the different tribes. And uh, so, they, I mean, like in, in a traditional Hindu family, you see, the boys stay in the house of the father and they keep the name and so on. Whereas girls are sent out, like in a marriage ceremony, there's even a moment when the father has to shed tears because he's taking leave of his daughter. She's leaving his house and he may never see her again. Um, so, so it's not the whole tribe even that can say, I am a member of the tribe. You know, so only the real tribesmen, they can say Arya. We are Arya. Um, in practice also, it means they are relatives of the, the head of the tribe. Why? Because um, in a primitive society where not too many people live together and a successful man has many wives and indeed other families seek to pass off their daughter as the next wife of the king, you know, very soon all the tribesmen are related to the king, right? Now the word Ari, the word Ari is often used in the sense of enemy, hmm? but or originally it means the front runner. Like in a race, you see the man who is best, you know, who can run the fastest and who is therefore ahead is for all the other runners, the enemy. He is the one to be beaten. And so the word Ari has this strange semantic development of both meaning the chief and meaning the enemy. Right? And so the Aryas are related to the Ari. Uh, right? So originally, it's a very ethnic term, but not ethnic in the sense of one ethnicity. No, every Indo-European tribe called itself Arya. The Hittites called themselves Arus, which means fellow tribesmen. The Iranians called themselves Arya. And then later it became the ethnic name of the Iranians. Um, because Iranian means comes from Ayriyana Kshatra, which means the Kshatra, the dominion of the Aryas. And the, the King uh, Cyrus, the first emperor of the Persians, also says of himself, I am an Arya. And so the Pauravas had the same habit. It is quite possible that the Aikswakus and the Yadavas and all the other tribes had the similar habit also originally called themselves Arya, but we have no writing of that, you see? By the time those people started writing, they had adopted the Vedic culture and their Arya meant Vedic and ultimately meant Paurava. Good evening, Dr. Els. It's always a pleasure listening to you. Okay. Uh, I, just, in, I just want to talk about Buddhism in the modern context. Uh, of course, in, at least in India, Dr. Ambedkar has been a very big proponent of Buddhism. Uh, citing it as kind of a revolutionary uh, religion, at least against uh, casteism. So do you think his understanding of Buddhism was right? Or do you think he was well-read in that regard? Or do you think he made mistakes uh, here and there that we may be you know, seeing repercussions of? Well, I have quoted somewhere uh, the reviews 
in Buddhist journals of his book back then in 56. And they're quite negative. You see, like there's one from Sri Lanka that said, okay, you see, Dr. Ambedkar is a great man, but unfortunately, this is not a great book. The one about the Buddha and his Dhamma, where he gives his own version of Buddhism. And so it's quite distorted. You see, the, um, the spiritual aspect, aspect, which was central for the Buddha, is very um, peripheral there. Uh, in fact, um, modern uh, representatives of the Dalit movement regret that many Mahars and, and other followers of Ambedkar who have converted to Buddhism are taking Buddhism seriously and are practicing Vipassana meditation and so on. They think this is all, you know, a waste. This is opium of the people that instead, you see, they should use Veda, uh, they should use Buddha to destroy the Vedas and Hinduism. Um, but so, you see, those people like Gopal Guru, for example, has written these uh, articles in which he deplores the Buddhization of the nominal neo-Buddhists. Whereas I, of course, think this is a very good thing. Veer Savarkar's comment that Ambedkar's embracing of Buddhism was a short jump into Hinduism. And so you see that being fulfilled with those followers who take Buddhism seriously and who start practicing Buddhism. They come back a long part of the way to their Hindu surroundings. Whereas political neo-Buddhists had wanted just the opposite. But so that politicization of Buddhism is a wrong emphasis. It's also historically not correct. You see this, this huge Brahmin Buddhist conflict that lasted for centuries, that's not been there. You see, Buddhism was a part of the family. Like in, as I told you, in the, um, the of all the philosophies, Buddhism is just one next to Shaivism, next to Jainism, and so on. Um, so, you know, historically it's not correct. And, and anyway, the, the emphasis away from the proper central spiritual concern of Buddhism is deplored by real Buddhists. Apart from that, I mean, Ambedkar was an interesting man. He was a great man. He did certain great things. He also did things that were not so bright. But you see about his choice of Buddhism, first of all, it is the first time ever that anyone converted from Hinduism to Buddhism. There were many Hindus who embraced Buddhism at some point, the Buddha himself to begin with, but they never left Hinduism. The notion that you have to burn your ships behind you when you embrace Christianity, that's a typical Christian notion. And, uh, you know, when, when over here our king Clovis in 496 uh, converted from German paganism to uh, Catholicism. His baptism father says, 
said to him, Now burn what you pray to and pray to what you burn. Of course, this was Christian self-flattery because the pagans never burned anything Christian. You see, they claimed victimhood, like what is happening nowadays. Back then also, you see, they claimed that the pagans did to the Christians what the Christians were doing to the pagans. Anyway, that's not my point. The point is that you had to burn your own past religion. You had to break all ties with it. Now, that did not exist in India before Christianity and Islam came. Um, so you remained part of Hindu society. You kept all the same customs. You kept the same family and so on. Only you followed Buddhism. So that was totally new. And um, so then the fact of politicizing, of course, maybe it was inevitable at that stage of history. But it's, you know, from, from a religious viewpoint, it's a bit funny. And fortunately, it's over. You know, it's uh, not so important anymore. Sir, uh, I had uh, one question which was actually uh, is actually based on a uh, fact which is Asalayana Sutta, which is actually largely used to say that Buddha was somehow against Brahmins and also the Vedas. So in Asalayana Sutta, there is a direct mention to the, the like Brahmins coming from uh, face and Kshatriyas coming from hand and where he is supposedly rejecting that idea, hence the Vedas, hence the Brahmanical supremacy, something like that. And hence, he's rejecting whole Hindu idea. And second thing I wanted to say was that uh, you said that conversion notion, there is a very good example of uh, one Pushana king. Uh, he actually converted to Buddhism, but at the same time, he kept worshipping Helios. And there are coins from the Kushan's edge that he actually has Helios on uh, one side and Buddha on other side. So this notion right. is actually very well documented. Yes, I mean, in, in the vast corpus of the Buddha's own teachings, there are a few polemics with Brahmins. And I mean, that's okay. You know, there were many polemics with all kinds of people. Um, so that, that doesn't mean he had his eye, especially against the, uh, the Brahmins. But okay, well, he simply accepted the fact of caste society, as the Buddhists, the Buddhists would do everywhere. You see, in China, they would accept the Chinese social structure. In Japan, similarly. And so in India, they accepted caste society. There was never any question about it. But by that time already, this was long after the Purusha Sukta. The Purusha Sukta at lowest estimate is beginning of second millennium BC. So more than 1000 years before the Buddha. Um, by that time, Brahmins were some Brahmins, at least those Brahmins, not all the other Brahmins he meets, but those Brahmins already seem to have taken caste too seriously. You see, what you find in the Purusha Sukta is a, is a metaphor where you see the thinking members of society are compared to the head, the action-oriented members are compared to the arms, and so on. Um, so some people take that literally, and yeah, this, this leads to weird conclusions. 
You know, I mean, nowadays on Twitter, if you try to make a joke, especially if you try to be ironical, you will immediately get reactions from people who have taken you literally, who just don't understand this double entendre, these different layers of understanding in the normal use of a language. Uh, so back then too, you see, unfortunately, people took it literally, some did. And so it's very correct that he answered that. You know, I have no problem with that. And um, I would not conclude, conclude from that, that he rejected Vedic tradition as such. That he did not do. Uh, the um, practice of meditation is very simple. So you see, among Western scholars, many say, oh yeah, but you know, the Upanishads are no real yoga. You know, they speak about, you know, about uh, enlightenment or about the self, but you know, they don't give a, a manual of what to do and so on. Of course not, because meditation essentially is very simple. And so all these uh, poses and breathing exercises and so on are only to help your mind come into a state where meditation is natural. And uh, so the meditation state itself, well, there is nothing to be said about it. Um, a um, German scholar who became a monk, a uh, Hindu monk, I mean, um, Agehananda Bharati, um, spoke of a zero experience. This makes much sense to me. So what you achieve in meditation is zero experience. And then when you come out of it and you start speaking about what you've been through, well, everybody has his own metaphors. And so these become a system. And so you have different systems that are built around this experience. And so these different systems admittedly are different. But the basic central experience is the same. It is in that sense that you could say Sarva Dharma Sama Bhava. It's in that, that sense that you could say all religions say the same thing. Yeah, if you mean all those sampradayas, all those spiritual paths, they lead to the same goal, to the same zero experience. That is true. The constructions, the conceptual frameworks that they build around this zero experience, they are already a little bit different. Though usually they can be translated into one another. You can say that Kaivalya is the same thing as Mukti and so on. I mean, that's that's matter for debate that can get very technical, but that's not the same thing as saying that Hinduism is the same as Christianity or as Islam, because they do not start with this zero experience. They are not about this zero experience. In fact, you're not supposed to pursue that zero experience. If it doesn't pass through uh, Mohammed, if it doesn't pass through Jesus, you shouldn't do it. And <laughs> pursuing this, what they call a funny feeling of liberation, <laughs> you know, of a certain state of consciousness, it is hubris. It is pretentiousness to think that that can liberate you. Only the blood of Christ can liberate you, you know. 
That's what Christianity says. So if you set any store by this meditation, you're on the wrong track for them. Right? So in that case, you cannot say all religions say the same thing. But within the Hindu commonwealth, there you can say that they all say the same thing. So when we come to know about the Hindu tradition, we sometimes see that uh, uh, and uh, read and listen about the avtaras, avtaras of gods. But when we are going to Buddhism and uh, their stories, we all, uh, we also read about the both jatkas, which are related to previous birth of both Lord Buddha. Yeah. So they were supporting re- reincarnation th- uh, theory or not? Well, by the time of the Buddha, it was simply taken for granted. By that time, pretty much everyone believed in reincarnation. And people thought in terms of reincarnation. You know, I can't pay you back my debt now, but next life I will pay back. So to speak. You know, I mean, they took reincarnation very literally. And so the Buddha, whenever he talks about events in the past, he adds the detail that, oh, and back then I was the king of Kashi or I was whatever. But so he remembers his own life in that period when this other event happened. And so, according to the Jatakamala, uh, um, he also remembered his own birth as Rama. He was also a relative of Rama. He was also of the solar dynasty like most Kshatriyas in that part of India. Um, So he was a relative as well as a reincarnation of Rama. And so logically, by the time Rama got promoted into an incarnation of Vishnu, it was only logical to do the same for the Buddha. Now, in 2005, uh, this... um, Mr. Goenka, uh, who spread the, the Vipassana meditation technique, he demanded that the um, Shankaracharya of Kanchi um, do away, even though he doesn't really have the power to do that. Anyway, but he's a major Hindu figure, so he had to do away with the Hindu notion that the Buddha was an incarnation of Vishnu. So he did, you know, it was a unilateral compromise where the non-Hindu side compromised nothing and the Hindus compromised everything, the usual. Uh, But so he said, no, okay, okay, the Buddha was not the incarnation. But what does that mean to be an incarnation of something? You know, that's a, a manner of speaking. That's not some status, some certificate given to you. Oh, from now on, you are an incarnation of Vishnu. But at any rate, whatever we think of the doctrine of incarnation, this is not something that Brahmins have imposed on Buddhists. On the contrary, it's the Buddha himself who invented it. It's the Buddha himself who equated himself with Rama, and therefore, when Rama was equated with Vishnu, he himself also. And so this is not an imposition at all. This is just a figure of speech, and one that came from the Buddhists themselves. Um, Good evening, Dr. Elst. Uh, On one side, we have Buddha 
remembering his past life and referring uh, and it is very predominantly a buddhist theme in jatakas but they don't have the concept of atman and this appears to be a very big disconnect uh, i would like uh, you to to give your view on this well <laughs> i refer to uh, the above i did discuss that uh, but so it is really very simple as i said plus 0 equals minus 0 and you know atman equals anatman is just the same thing it's emptiness it's neti neti neither this nor that it has no qualities there's no colors it's an image that is often used in hinduism the essential colorness colorlessness of the brahma you know uh so is the same i mean it's a false problem you know <laughs> to say that uh you know buddhism is separate because unlike hinduism it doesn't believe in itself that's just playing with words you know that's about nothing they are about the same zero experience uh, sir we also come to learn about uh, bodh satwas bodh satwas who are helping others to attaining enlightenment So, sir, what is the theory of both satwas? They were spreading Bodhis- Buddhism, or they were actually helping people to get enlightenment or to solve their problems in their lives. Yeah, well, that's what that's what Hindu gurus do all the time, you know. And in fact, that's what Vedic sacrificers also do. The idea is, you know, whether it, any anything material corresponds to it at any rate the idea is that you sacrifice for the greater good of the world and so so that notion is present also in the uh, the metta technique which is done in buddhism of spreading your sympathy or compassion across all the beings in the universe so that's okay that's a good thing however the notion that the bodhisattva is someone who postpones his own enlightenment until everyone has been enlightened which can take a long time that of course is laughed at by more orthodox buddhists by theravada buddhists you see they say this is nonsense the best you can ever do for the universe is to become enlightened to become liberated you know <laughs> to postpone your own liberation in order to better liberate the others that's nonsense it's like in an airplane or other you know in ships and so on they they give instructions that if anything happens you first have to help yourself you have to put on your own life vest and so on before you do that to your children because when you are safe yourself you are far better able to help others right so in the case of the bodhisattva it's a bit of a nonsensical idea by becoming liberated yourself you are optimally able to help others as long as you're here um so postponing your own liberation that's a, a luxury that makes no sense 